Did you catch the sign above the door on the way out? It says this. It said, you are now leaving the wonderful world of Marvin's and are re-entering the grim world of reality. And isn't that true? There is this grim world of reality that just has this tendency to beat life right out of our lives. I mean, sometimes we're so full of excitement and we have this vision and this place we want to go with our lives, but, but reality just has a way of beating life right out of us. And, and so let's do a little quiz here. I'm going to need you to help me out a little bit. Um, when, when I first got married 26 years ago, um, I had this vision for what a marriage could be and should be. I had this set of qualities that I wanted in my marriage, qualities like honesty, like integrity, like uh, this idea of passion for one another, this idea of respect and love for one another. But, but just help me out. How many of you think that over the 26 years of marriage, the, the grim reality of life, the everyday grind of life has sort of beat that vision out of me at times? Yeah, because all of us, I think we, we have what, this idea of what we could be and should be in life, but reality just has a way of putting that on the back burner because the truth is there have been times in my life where work and obligations and kids and the outlaws, I mean the in-laws, you know, the, the whole deal, right? It just sort of sucks it away from you and you lose vision for what you want to become. Turn to your neighbor right now and say, Life is hard on visions. Life is hard on visions. It really is. I remember 17 years ago, a doctor turned to me and handed a baby to me. And I had held a baby before, just not my baby. And this was the first time I had a baby. And I remember in that moment, there was this God-given vision for the kind of man I wanted to be, for the kind of father I would become the kind of father I could be and should be. But, but isn't it funny how life just can beat that out of you sometimes? Because how many would say just by a little vote that there have probably been times in my life that I have lost the vision of the kind of father I want to be because when my son thinks he's in charge or when my, my 14-year-old daughter thinks I'm completely out of touch with the real world or my two little guys have lost their ball glove for the 23rd time and I bought them 10 new ones because they have left them in the rain every single time, It's amazing how we lose vision for the kind of person we want to become. And I'll just be honest with you. Plenty of times in my life, I have lost vision for who God is calling me to, what I could be and what I should be. You see, friends, listen. Life is hard on vision. Reality ruins dreams. It just does. The everyday grind of life beats life right out of you. It beats the vision of life right out of you. Some 15 years ago, when my wife and I launched this tiny little church we call Metro in my living room, I had grand visions of, of having tens of thousands of people, right? And, and I had this grand vision that every weekend I would preach the best message ever and that I would always have the right words to say and the right words of counsel and, and that people would be lining up to give and to pray and to partner together and to reach together. I had all these lofty visions. But how many would say there's probably been a time or two that I've lost that vision because there have been a time or two where I have felt absolutely overwhelmed, absolutely overworked, um, swimming in the deep and feeling like like, I just did not have what it takes to do this job. 
and I've been scrambling just to put together, I have like an hour left to put together a, a less than stirring message, another less than stirring message. And, and I failed another family because I couldn't do their grandmother's funeral. Or I couldn't make it to the hospital in time or, or I didn't have the right words to somehow lift their marriage up. You see, friends, there's been a time or two, how many would say that I probably have lost vision for the kind of pastor I wanted to be? Don't you dare raise your hand on that. I'm a great pastor. I get it right all the time, right? No, no friends, the, the truth is, the truth is, I don't need to tell you that reality ruins dreams. That life has a way of, of stopping the visions that we have for the kind of life that we thought we would have. Reality is hard on things. Reality is hard on dreams. And one of the great tragedies that I think so many of us know about is because we know what could be and what should be from God's perspective, and we're simply not doing it because life has gotten in the way. We have this, the the great tragedy for most of us in this room is that we know what we should be becoming in our life, but we settle for way less because life is simply hard because there there are so many distractions taking us away from the very thing that we know we should be going about. Am I right? Anybody ever decide, like, I'm going to get, lose weight and get in shape this year? It's now February. How did it go? Life just gets in the way. Life is now. Bills are now. Chaos is now. Crisis moments are right now. Listen, vision is, is for later in life, right? Vision is for something that, that will happen uh, down the road some way. And it's easy to begin living moment by moment and begin sacrificing what, what is truly important to us because of what is urgent in our life. It, it, it's just easy um, to begin sacrificing what is, is best for our lives And it's easy to settle for what is simply good enough in our lives. But who really wants to settle for good enough? Who wants to settle for simply okay? Who wants to settle for simply getting by? When God has created us for so much more. When God has wired us for so much more to have dreams that are bigger than that, visions that are bigger than that for our lives. Friends, this is why so many of us because of the distractions of life. This is why so many of us end up with marriages that are far less than we thought that they would be. That's why so many of us have marriages that are just barely hanging on. This is why so many of us have relationships with our children that are way less than they could have been or should have been. We've screwed it up because we've let the busyness of life take over the very important things of life. And this is why so many of us have finances that are completely a mess. This is why so many of us have health that is failing way too early in our lives. And this is why so many of us have souls that are simply empty. Because life is hard on vision. Reality is hard on dreams. And the grind of life has a way of beating life right out of us. And we never end up becoming who we are supposed to become. Let me tell you something, friends. If there's any takeaway from today, it's just this. Don't get distracted. I think most of us have this sense of call at one point or another in our life, this this sense of urgent urgent change that, that we need to go somewhere with our life, do something with our life, change something with our life. But we get distracted. I'm telling you something. Just don't get distracted. 
Keep the main thing the main thing. Don't get distracted. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't get distracted. Don't. Some of you got distracted just doing that. It's ridiculous. Don't get distraction. Distraction. Why? Because distractions are fatal to vision. Distractions ruin dreams. And so here's the thing. We need to learn how to fight distractions. We need to learn how to handle distractions. You need to learn how to handle distractions. I need to learn how to handle distractions because this world is full of distractions. So if it's okay with you, here's what I want to do. I just want to walk us through one of my favorite passages of scripture. And it is a story of a man who had to fight distractions, who learned how to handle distractions and handled them in some pretty big ways, in ways that I think that you and I can learn from. And so you may be familiar with this little story. It's a story of a man named Nehemiah. He's found in the, the story is found in the Old Testament part of the Bible. His story is absolutely amazing. And I encourage you to go back and read it from beginning to end. It's, it's found in the ancient Bible book called Nehemiah, right? That bears his name. And so read his story. I'm telling you, friends, it'll be so worth it to you. You'll be so challenged. The word of God will come alive to you if, if you read it from beginning to end. Just, just start at chapter one of Nehemiah and just read it from beginning to end. And I'm telling you, you will be better for it if you do. But we don't have time to go all the way through it. So uh, here's what I'd like to do. I just want to explain some things to you and then take some learnings away from it because in a lot of ways, Nehemiah was just like most of us in this room. Nehemiah was a very ordinary guy living a very ordinary life, uh, everyday sort of a life. He had an everyday sort of a job, an everyday sort of existence. Um, But all of a sudden, God does something crazy in his life. God drops a dream on him. God drops a vision into his life. It's like all of a sudden he gets captured by something that God was stirring in his soul and he knew it was time to change something in his life. You see, Nehemiah was a Hebrew. He was a Jew, but he wasn't born in Jerusalem. He didn't live in Israel. He was actually born and raised in the land of Persia. You see, his ancestors were taken captive and enslaved by the Persians uh, like a century beforehand. And at this point, Nehemiah had never even been to his homeland of Israel. He had never uh, been to Jerusalem. He had only heard stories about this great city of God called Jerusalem. He had only heard stories about living in freedom where people were free to worship God, their God, the way that they wanted to in the temple of God. He had only heard these rumors. He had only heard these stories, right? But at this point in his life, he was, he was a enslaved in Persia. Literally, he was, he was working directly for the Persian king. He was the cupbearer to the king. So his job was literally to serve the king food and drink. His job was to make sure that the food served to the king was safe for the king's consumption. And so Nehemiah was this everyday guy going through this everyday grind of life when all of a sudden God gets a hold of him because he starts to hear something through the grapevine about about this homeland city called Jerusalem. He begins to hear that the city of Jerusalem was desolated, that the walls of this great city had been knocked down and it was defenseless and the people living there were impoverished and that they were broken people, that they were leaderless people and that they they had lost their hope and they had lost their relationship with God. And God speaks to this man named Nehemiah, this servant, this everyday kind of a guy, like literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away, speaks to him and says, you go to Jerusalem and do something about it. God speaks to him and says, you go and you rebuild my people and you rebuild my city. 
Now, this is quite interesting to me because um, Nehemiah would have been, you know, one guy who, uh, who could have made a litany of excuses. We could have like a whole messages right here because Nehemiah had some legit excuses. He could have been like, hey, 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 first of all, let me tell you something. I've never even met these people, God. Like they don't email anymore. They don't FaceTime me. You know, they don't send me letters. It's like, I have never even met my distant family, let alone get a, in like a, like a caravan and like go down and, and to do something for them. So he had an excuse right off. He could have said, I don't even know these people. And then he could have said, hey, and second, listen, I'm in no position here. I am just a servant. I'm just a slave to the king. I'm a cupbearer for crying out loud. It's not like I can walk into the king's room and say, hey, Mr. King, I need a couple weeks vacation. I got to go fix the city that your people destroyed 100 years ago. It's like he couldn't do that. He could have said, third of all, he, said, he could have said to God, you got the wrong guy. You totally got the wrong guy. I don't have an education. I'm not particularly skilled. I'm not a military guy. I'm not a great leader. I'm not a great business guy. I am a cup bearer. I am a servant. You got the wrong guy. He could have said, God, I'm completely broke here. I'm a slave. I don't have any money. I don't have gas money. I don't even have gas money to get down to Toledo, let alone to Jerusalem, right? I mean, you want to talk about a guy who could have lined up all of these excuses. But God called him. And God spoke to him and said, you go, you go to Jerusalem and you rebuild my people and you rebuild my city. And you go back and you read the story of Nehemiah. It'll blow your mind how God called him and how God provided for him. It is awesome. The story of how God worked in this man's life because he was willing to be used by God. It's an amazing story, but we're going to pick it up in chapter six, about halfway right through the book. And Nehemiah at this point is in Jerusalem. The king not only let him go, but gave him money and authority to rebuild. He put him in charge, literally. He made him the leader of this, this particular province called Jerusalem, right? And, and so he was set up for a win. And at this point, when we're picking it up in chapter six, he had been there for about six or seven weeks and the job was almost done. He almost had the walls completed. The people were on board. Everybody was on board. Everybody was working. All the families came out. Everybody was doing their share. Everybody was pitching in. And this is where we, we sort of pick up the story. Nehemiah chapter six, we discovered that things were going quite well at this point. Now let's just pause here for a second because maybe you can relate to this. Distractions often come when things are going really well in our life. Amen? You ever been like cruising along thinking, this is great. Life is good. And that's when you get a flat tire. And I don't mean just a flat tire on the road. I mean, there is something that sucks the air out of you in life. Like you're like flying high and life is good and family is good. And that is when tragedy seems to strike. It's like when you finally feel like you're getting ahead. It's like when you finally feel like you're moving forward. When you're finally making some changes you've been working at for years. And all of a sudden you feel like you're taking some steps. And then bam! It's like five steps back. Anybody ever have that? Because listen, distractions, they come when things are going really, really well. And in Nehemiah's case... Um, they, they were just days away from seeing their vision completed. As a matter of fact, Nehemiah six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, it begins to say that, that the job was almost done. All they had left to do was put the doors in, hang the pictures, and put the mailbox out. It says that they were almost done with it. But let me tell you something, friends. This is a dangerous spot for Nehemiah. And it is a dangerous spot for you and me. 
When we think we're arrived, when we think we've got it all together, when we think we're there, when we think it's almost complete in our life, you better watch out. Because this is when the the, the distractions come. This is when we often head south. This is when we often take a turn for the worse because we think it's time to coast. Amen? Y'all with me on this? This is when it becomes dangerous for us. And it became dangerous for Nehemiah. It is easy to get distracted when you think things are just going really, really well. And Nehemiah was about to experience three major distractions. Listen, three major distractions that could have taken his vision completely off. That could have ruined his dream. And listen to what it says in Nehemiah chapter 6. I'm going to begin in verse 1. Listen to this. It says, you just follow along. I'm going to read it to you. It says, now when Sanzbalat, Sanzbalat, think that's how you say it? When Sanzbalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the walls and that there was no breach left in it. In other words, it was almost done. It was all almost done. Although at that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanzbalat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hekperim out in the plains of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. So he gets his invitation. Hey, come out. Let's, let's, let's meet. Okay. And these were his known enemies. And they're like acting all buddy-buddy. Hey, let's come out. Let's talk about some things. Let's get this together, right? And, and so he goes, no, no, no. I knew what was going on. They intended me harm. And, and I sent messengers to say to them, listen, this is what he says to them. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Woo! You ever hear that? Yes. God's given you a vision. God gave Nehemiah a vision. He was in the middle of a great work. And all of a sudden, distractions start to come. And he goes, I can't come down. Are you crazy? I'm in a great work right now. I can't stop now. Listen to this. He says, and he says, so why should we stop the work while I leave it and come down to talk to you or to hang out with you or to play around with you? And they sent me this message four times in the same way. And I answered them the same way every single time. In Nehemiah 6, listen, we find that Nehemiah faced distractions. And we're going to learn that he faced the very same distractions that we do in our, in our own lives. But Nehemiah faced them head on. And somehow he won. Somehow he held on to his vision. Where many times you and I, we give up. Where you and I get distracted. So let's learn together what, what he says. And I think here is the very first distraction that comes Nehemiah's way. And it's, an, it's an, a distraction that comes all of our ways. And you may want to write this down. Uh, the very first one is Opportunities opportunities are often really just a distraction from what you're really called to do, what your life is really supposed to be about. There are these opportunities that seem so good on the surface, but really what they are is a distraction from what God has truly called you to do, right? Sansabelt and Geshem, they, 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 uh, they, they came there knowing that they were trying to lure Nehemiah into the plain of Ono. And now the plain of Ono was, was almost 20 miles away. Why did they want this? Because they knew if they could get him out of the city, out of the protection of all of his clansmen, out of all of his people, out of all of the people who were partnering with him, if they could get him off the wall, what could they do? They could kill him. So they come pretending to be buddy-buddy. They, they come pretending to, to be friends. It, it's like when you're watching TV, right? And you know the good guy in the movie? And the good guy is like being lured into this place. And you're going, don't go! It's a trick! Don't go! There's an axe murderer under the bed! And you're just yelling at the screen, right? Well, that's exactly what was going on here. They were trying to lure him. Sansa Belt and Geshem were like, hey, let's do lunch. 
We know this great little place 20 miles outside of town. We'll even buy it. It's a little cafe. It's really nice. Right? But Nehemiah, he understood that opportunities are often distractions from our real mission. I want you to think about this. Nehemiah had almost completed the project, so it was perfectly normal that neighboring provinces, neighboring cities would come and they would begin to try to normalize relations. Let's, let's start our terms of agreement. Let's start our business relationship. Let's start our trade relationships. And, and so they come in trying to make it look like they're all nice. And, 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 and even more so with Nehemiah, in this case, I was thinking like, Nehemiah, if, 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 if this was like me, I'd have been like, yeah, I'm coming right down because I want to brag. Like, I want to tell you how great this is. Did you see what we did? And it was like 52 days and we rebuilt the city. But Nehemiah wasn't like you and me. He wasn't easily distracted by good opportunity because opportunity in this case would have been fatal to him. And oftentimes, friends, I'm telling you, for you and me, opportunity can often end up fatal. We, we face, today, listen, I, I think if you think about this, this is absolutely true. Today, you and I, if, if, if you have something inside of your heart, inside of your mind that God is calling you to, that you're trying to move toward, that you want to change, that you want to improve, we have more opportunity than ever in our life to screw that up. And most of those opportunities are good things. We have more opportunity for travel, more opportunity for entertainment. I hear like there's like 500 cable channels. How ridiculous is that? You can entertain yourself right into your grave. And you'll smile all the way there. We have more opportunity for investment. We have more opportunity for business. We have more opportunity to see the world, to engage the world around us. But the truth is this, friends, that sometimes we settle for good at the expense of what is great. We settle for what is good at the expense of what is great. We trade education for entertainment. We swap investments for consumption. We choose the ice cream bar over the salad bar. We, we hit the couch instead of hitting the gym. We go for what's easy instead of what is good and what is better and what is right for our lives. We are so easily distracted, friends. We trade what's now for what could be. And friends, let me tell you something. This is what I found, and I'm guessing most of you are wise enough to figure this out too. I have found most of the trade-offs are not for the good. Most of the trade-offs are bad deals in the end. What satisfies in the moment generally isn't what's really good for my life. And my guess is, is that you're figuring this out as well. There is this constant struggle for me. Um, Every week, it's this fight to, to, to weed through the opportunities that come my way because I, I want my life to count. I want it to, to matter. But I have all these opportunities, so I gotta weed through them. I gotta fight through them and, and able to focus on what really God is calling me to focus on. And friends, I gotta ask you, what are the few things in your life? What are the two or three things? Come on, you come to church all the time, most of you. You're thinking about deep things in your life. What are the two or three things that God is calling you to do? What are the two or three things that you know you have to fix, that you have to move forward on, that you have to dig deeper into? What are they? Friends, if you're like me, you have a million different things calling for your attention. And somewhere along the way, we have got to learn to say no to good things in order to say yes to the right things. Come on. That's really good, Pastor Jay. It's true. It's true. Good things calling out to our families. I could be busy six days a week, seven nights a week. I could be out there doing more and more and more stuff, all good stuff, but very little of it will take me to where God really wants me to go with my life. 
So somehow or another, we got to wrestle through this and figure out what are opportunities that are actually fatal attractions to us or fatal distractions to us. What did he say in Nehemiah chapter six, verse um, three? He said it like this. He says, and this is a verse I think we should just memorize. I think we should like write it down. I think we should like plaster it, like maybe tattoo it. I am doing a good work and I can't come down. I'm doing a good work. God's called me to something. God's called me to be part of something. He's created me for something. I'm doing a good work and I cannot come down. Friends, listen, if we don't somehow lock in to our purpose and learn to say no to a whole bunch of other things, we will never become what God has created us to become. Never. Because we'll be so distracted. Don't get distracted. Here's the second thing. Here's the second distraction that comes Nehemiah's way, and it's the same distraction I think you and I have to face. It's this word called criticism. Come on, criticism. Anybody ever been criticized? Anybody? When you feel like you're like moving forward, when you want to make some changes, criticism seems to come so quickly. If you go and track through the story of Nehemiah, it is an amazing story because almost from day one, Nehemiah was criticized. Let me tell you something. When, when in your life, if you want to move forward, if you step forward, it's like as soon as you step out of the trench, it's like somebody's got you as a target. It's like the world gets you as a target. The world wants to beat life right out of you. It wants to beat vision right out of you. Don't let it. Criticism. Listen to what happens with Nehemiah, chapter 6, verses 5 and five, 5 through 7. It says this. In the same way, Sanzibelt, for the fifth time now, sent a servant to me with an open letter in his hand. Now pay attention to this. An open letter in his hand. It is, it, in it was written, it is reported among the nations that Geshem, and Geshem also says that you and the Jews intend to rebel and that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports we are hearing, you wish that you could become their king. And so what, what's going on? His enemies are setting rumors into place. They're, they're, they're shouting negativism, right? They're, they're bringing criticism and they're, and they're letting everybody know. It's very interesting, right? It says, and you also have set up prophets to proclaim uh, concerning you in Jerusalem. In other words, you've hired people to say, you're the man. Nehemiah is the man. We should all be following Nehemiah and we're no longer loyal to the king of Persia. That's what's going on here. And it says this, and you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah now and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. What's, it, what's he doing? He, he's, in, in this day, when a letter was written, it wasn't like emailed over. You got that, right? It was written on a scroll. It was written on papyrus. It was written on leather. Then they would roll it up. They would tie a string around it. Then they would seal it with like wax or they would seal it with like, uh, like some sort of clay in order to, to say that this letter has not been opened. But what did it say? This was an opened letter. In other words, out of all the hands that it traded places, out of all the hands that it went through, everybody was able to read what was in this letter. Oh, we thought it was going to be a private letter to you. But it wasn't private. They were telling everybody everything. They were spreading what? Lies and rumors and negativity. That's exactly what was going on. And, and, and so Nehemiah... He, he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Nothing could be further from the truth. But, but perception is 
is often reality, right? It's hard to stop a rumor. Anybody ever try to stop a rumor about you? Come on. Really hard, isn't it? Really hard. Now, I don't know how many times in my life that I've been criticized. I've been criticized so much I should be an expert on dealing with criticism. But if I was to be honest with you, I am no Nehemiah when it comes to dealing with criticism. I fight back and I lash out and, and I get defensive and I get angry, especially when I feel it's like so unfair sometimes, you know what I mean? I'm sure like I'm the only one who deals with this, right? But the truth is, is uh, Nehemiah didn't allow himself to get distracted by the criticism. As a matter of fact, look how Nehemiah responds. Uh, chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Listen very carefully. It says, Then I sent a letter back to him saying, No such things as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from their work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Listen to what happened here. He, he says, what, what you're saying is a lie and you know it's a lie. You're just making it up. And the reason you're making up this lie is to scare all of us. It's to make all these people think that, oh my goodness, the Persians are going to come and wipe us out now because we're setting up our own little kingdom. You know full well we're not setting up a kingdom. You know full well that I came on the authority of the Persian king to do this exact job. And you're going around telling everybody that's just not true. And the reason you're doing that is to stop the work. But look at how he handles this. He just says this. This is an amazing thing. This is so unlike Jeremy and this is probably so unlike all of you. He simply goes, you're lying and you know it and then he turns to God to fight this distraction me I like send 42 letters back and forth he just says you're lying and you know it and then he gives it over to God come on he gives it over to God he pour, let me tell you something friends you can't stop a runaway mouth about your life from somebody else. You just can't. You gotta pour your heart out to God. You need to give it to him and then you need to keep working. Then you need to keep going after your dream. You need to keep running after it. In fact, listen, friends, listen, listen, listen. The best way to silence your critics, this is what I'm learning, it is to complete your vision. You wanna shut them up? And you told them you're going to lose 20 pounds? Lose 20 pounds. Come on. Just for the record, I said I was going to lose 20 pounds in January, and I lost 20 pounds in January. Come on. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Some of y'all going, I thought you looked skinnier. Listen, in fact, the very best way to silence your critics is to complete what God has called you to. It's to complete what God has called you to. Here's what they said about us. What do you mean? You're going you're gonna to take an old grocery store and turn it into a church. That's crazy. Well, what do you mean you're going to take an old sports authority next to Hooters and you're going to turn it into a church? What do you mean that you're going to take a, a building that was an old recreation center that's been abandoned for 15 years and you're going to turn it into a church campus? Yeah, and watch us, and watch us. You see, the best way to silence a critic is to follow through with what God has called you to. It is to be faithful to the very thing that God has called you to. 
No matter how hard it is, no matter the weight, no matter what comes against you, the way to silence your critics is to do what God has called you uniquely to do, to live out your faith, to become the man or the woman that God has designed you to become. That's it. So Nehemiah uh, 6.16 actually says it like this, that when, when, when the project was complete, when the city was restored and governance was given to the land of Israel, listen to what it says. It says that, there, that the enemies of Nehemiah lost their confidence and spoke no more. Woo! That's good news. That's good news. Listen, friends, there are these opportunities that come your way that sometimes are just fatal distractions. And there are these words of negativity, these words of criticism that come your way that are fatal distractions if you let it. But there's one more, one more that Nehemiah faced and I think every single person in this room faces. It is the distraction of fear. Write that down. Fear can be a major distraction in our life. You see, because anytime that anybody steps forward and says, I am going to change this. I am going to move this. I'm going to become this. I'm going to go for this. I'm going to move out, step out, step forward, move forward. Anytime that that happens, there is fear that somehow settles into our lives. It is true. Nobody is so perfectly self-confident that they can live without some sort of internal fear. Because somewhere buried deep inside of us, we think, I'm not sure that I'm wired to actually do this. I've tried this 14 other times. I've never been able to free myself of this. I've decided to stop smoking 32 times and I've never been able to do it. But God's calling me again and I'm just not sure. And so fear somehow lodges down in our soul and it keeps us from becoming all that God wants us to become. Look at how this this plays out with Nehemiah. This is an amazing thing. Unbelievable. Nehemiah chapter six, verses 10 through 13. I'm just gonna read it to you. It says, now when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delilah, uh, son of Meta, Mr. M, uh, who was, listen, who was confined to his home. And so apparently he goes to this guy's house who was confined to his home. Maybe he was sick, maybe he was an invalid, maybe he was old, we're not sure. But he, Nehemiah goes and pays these, these people a visit. And he said, listen, listen to what this guy says to him. So this must have been an important person for Nehemiah, the leader, to go and visit, Right? Must have been a very important person. And when he gets there, this person says, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by tonight. But I said, should a man such as I run away? Listen to this. Should a man such as I run away? And what, uh, and what man such as I could go to the temple and live? And, and uh He goes, I will not go in. And I understood and I saw that God did not send him, but he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanzbalat had hired him. In other words, these enemies had come to this guy and said, listen, we're coming to kill him and you better strike some fear in the heart of Nehemiah. You better warn him and you're gonna corner him in the temple. Then we know where he's gonna be. Then we know where he's gonna be and we're gonna come and raid the temple. Listen to this, listen to this. He goes, but I replied, I love this. Should someone in my position run away from danger? Should someone in my position enter the temple to save his life? <laughs> he goes, no, no, I will not do it. I love this because he says, should someone in my position 
just run? Should someone with my call in life just give up? Should someone who, who God has put this, this thing on my life, this vision on my life, this dream on my life, should someone like me, who God has called, who God has led, who God has pushed, should that person just give up? He says, no. He says, no, 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 no. You see, when, when, when his enemies couldn't distract him because of opportunity, when his enemies couldn't distract him because of criticism and negativity, they tried to strike fear in his heart. But once again, Nehemiah turns to God. He relies on God. He trusts the call of God in his life. He was sure that God was moving him and pushing him to something greater. And this is an amazing thing. There's a, uh, there's a reoccurring theme in the Bible. It's actually found in, in Joshua 1.9. It says that, uh, it, it says these words. It says, do not be afraid. God speaks to those who are trying to follow him. He says, do not be afraid. I command you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is, what? With you, wherever you go. So don't get distracted. Don't let uh, criticism don't let opportunity, don't let fear take the wind out from underneath where God has called you to go. And so let me just ask you, what's stopping you from becoming what God is calling you to become? Some of you are, are like at work all night long because there's opportunity for a little overtime, but you know full well that God has called you to something even greater than that. Yep, we have to provide. Yep, we have to work. Absolutely. But maybe... Some of you in this room need to go home. And when your little guy or your little girl's in bed asleep, you need to grab their little baby hand and you need to pray, God, you have called me to a great work and I cannot come down. I can't waste all of my time running after all these other things. Maybe opportunity for some of you in this room is your great distraction. You know, God has called you to work in his kingdom. Maybe God has called you to serve him in some way. Maybe God has called you to move forward in some way, but you got video games and you got sports leagues and you got the bowling league and you got late night card nights with the guys and you got all of these things and you can't figure out why nothing's going right in your life, why it's not changing, why it's not growing, why you're not becoming all that God has called you to become. Opportunity has become a fatal distraction in your life. Others of you maybe in this room, like there's criticism and you know where God's calling you and there's a critical ear or a critical mouth out there. There's a critical voice out there and it keeps knocking you down. Maybe you need to say, I've been called to a great work and I'm not coming down for you or for anybody else. So you might as well just shut that little thing up. We need to commit this to our soul. Maybe there's fear in you that you don't have what it takes. Well, God says, I'm with you always. And you need to like plaster on your locker, on your office, on the front of your car, right across your dashboard, right across your windshield maybe. I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. And you need to remind your enemies who it is that you're following and who it is that's calling you to something. Because he's calling you. Hear his voice and follow him. Here's how I want to end this. I want to play a video of a friend of mine who has had to go through a lot of distractions in his life. And God's teaching him a thing or two. Check this out.
like most people, we've all got our different stories. We all come from different backgrounds. Mine's a little different than most people because when I was born, they told my mom as soon as I was born that I wasn't going to live, you know, to give me my last rights. Um, I was born with a lot of health issues because I was born two months premature. Um, this caused a lot of problems. It caused me to have asthma and all those things, but the biggest one out of all of them, it caused me to have cerebral palsy. Um, cerebral palsy made my life um, very difficult when I was a kid. You know, I grew up, I had to wear braces, I couldn't tie my shoes, I couldn't write my name, I couldn't cut with scissors. And due to that, you know, I got, I got picked on a lot as a kid. You know, I got beat up and made fun of and, you know, the joke was always on me and I couldn't play sports like everybody else and all those kind of things. And it made for my childhood to be very, you know, very troublesome. You know, it was always a little bit harder for me and it led me to think, you know, like, what did I do, you know, to deserve all this kind of stuff? And uh, when I hit the age of 14, it was brought to my attention that I was also, I also was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Crohn's disease is an inflammatory bowel disease. What that does is it, when you're flamed up and it could be from anything from stress, it could be from what you eat and you could go to have to go to the bathroom at any drop of a hat. Um, you know, that stuff, that throws a wrench and makes things all the harder. So growing up like this, it made me want to find a way to like take a spotlight off of me. And because of that, I got mixed up with some kids that I probably shouldn't have. Um, it caused me to hang out with kids that were getting me into trouble. And my mom finally, you know, and had enough and took me down to a gym down in Detroit where I started boxing. And when I did it, when I started, it wasn't my idea. I didn't want nothing to do with it. I didn't like the idea of it. But, you know, after I fought the first time, I just realized this is something that I wanted to do. And um, it was a real turning point for me. It, it changed my life in a lot of ways, man, because it gave me the confidence to know I could defend myself. But at the same time, it kind of made me cocky in a sense. So it, it was a good thing, but a bad thing at the same time, because then you know, you're, you know, you're almost waiting for somebody to try to test you at that point. One day I was training in the, in the gym we're in now, and, uh, I was getting ready to fight and I had a tournament coming and I, uh, my Crohn's had been bothering me and I went to go see the doctor and the guy felt around on my stomach for a few seconds and tells me, well, dude, your appendix might explode. Originally they told me they were just going to do steroids, which is usually what you do for a Crohn's flare-up. But then the guy comes in with a little post-it note of what my stomach is supposedly supposed to look like and goes, hey, I need you to sign this. We're going to cut into your stomach. I really realized in that moment that life is a promise. The next day is a promise. Each day is a blessing. And I never really realized that. I guess maybe I took it for granted as a kid. Um, when I got out of the hospital, um, I had a buddy of mine that I had known. I had known from when we were kids, he, you know, would hit me up and come back into my life and we had started hanging out and stuff like that. And uh, he had been on me and on me like, hey man, you know, you need to go back to church. Hey man, you know, telling me how great it was. And I just, I kind of wrote it off and dismissed it. And I got this phone call after he told me all this, telling me, hey, he's dead. And I just, that like shocked my whole world because, you know, we've only been hanging out again for about four or five months again at this time and getting you getting to be good friends. And then the next thing you know, you know, he's dead. 
And then that leaves you thinking things of like, okay, God, you know, you've got your plan and everybody talks about, you know, God's got his plan and God is so great and God is sovereign and God is love and all these things. If God is all these things, then why did he let my friend die? After he died, I started going to Metro. I remember one day Jeremy was talking from stage and was talking about how, you know, you need to, you know, if, if you feel like you need to let the world know about what Christ is doing in your life and you want to be saved, you know, we have the baptism services. And I was sitting next to my friend's dad and I just, I knew, like something hit me and I knew that I needed to change and I needed to do that. But I didn't get up right away when he did it. Like his dad had walked in the other room and I'm sitting there by myself and I just felt like this nudge to to go and that it was something that I needed to do. And then shortly thereafter, me, his dad and his sister all got saved in the same service. So one of the hardest and craziest things that's ever happened in my life turned out to be one of the biggest blessings that I could have ever asked for. And, uh, you know, through me meeting Christ and all these kind of things that came from being at Metro, you know, I started, you know, I started working with kids with disabilities. And now I'm even connected in being a leader for Alive with the high school kids. Um, I'm a life group leader, and I've gotten to work with some really amazing kids there, too. Um, So, if anything, I think my story will show you, you know, what God is capable of doing if you're willing willing to give him your life. If it weren't for all these things that happened in my life or me coming to Metro, Quite frankly, I don't know where I'd end up, so all I can do is thank God for that. My name is Kyle Collison, and I am Metro. Amazing, isn't it? Just amazing. Hey, we're going to just stand together. We don't do this very often. We're going to stand together. We're going to close in prayer together. Just stand together. And let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you um, for your incredible grace and mercy in our life. We're thankful for the way that you speak to us. And even when we do not listen, when we run from you, when we push away from you, you are gracious toward us. So forgive us, Father, when we are uh, so easily distracted. God, forgive us when we're lazy and empathetic, and weak-willed in our life. Forgive us when we don't trust you completely. God, forgive us when our lives are more about us and ourselves and our own little kingdom than your kingdom. God, I pray that you would uh, remind us of these fatal distractions in our life. God, help us to weed through these opportunities. Help us to weed through these voices of criticism in our life and these fears that seem to gnaw at us. And help us to hear from you and to run after you, to be faithful to you. Help us to fix our eyes on your son, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen. Amen. Um, If you feel tonight that you want to pray with somebody, uh, we would love to pray with you up to my left, to your right. If you just want to connect and 
maybe talk to somebody. Uh, we would love to do that. Just make your way up to my left, to your right. And um, we'll, we'd love to connect. God be with you. I hope you guys come back for part two next week. See ya.